Mark 10 is where we'll be this morning. I want to tell you as we begin, uh, it's going to function a little bit differently than it normally does in that lots of times um, we'll read a text and then I'll say, okay, here's one, two, three, four, whatever things that we need to know from that text. In a lot of ways, this will kind of be like that, except what I want to do this morning is just walk through the text together And then we're going to make some observations and applications of it as we get to the end. There'll be some throughout it. Um, If I didn't tell you that, it probably wouldn't have seemed a lot different um, to you than normal. But just in case you're thinking, well, this is different. We're going to read the text as we go instead of all at once in the beginning. Um, So it may be a little bit different this morning. But um, I trust it will still make sense to you all this morning. We'll continue our conversation of walking like Jesus And so this is week seven of this examination of the life of Jesus Christ. And it is our quest through this examination that we would learn how Jesus walked in order that we might walk like Jesus. Obvious application here is that if we don't know how Jesus walked, we cannot walk as he walked. Okay? And so as we learn how it is that he walked, the expectation is that we would walk like he walked. Okay? I want you to know... That not knowing how Jesus walked is not an excuse to not walk as Jesus walked. Because the reality of God's word is, none of us, if we profess to be a follower of Jesus, do not have the ability to know how Jesus walked because he's given us his word. And so we'll continue this conversation this morning of walking like Jesus walked. And I want to begin with, uh, it's, this rhymes, and so I think when I found this illustration, it was, it was actually designed to be a poem, um, but I'm not going to read it like a poem, I'm just going to read it so you, you know, I, if it flows, just know I'm not trying to read a poem, but it's just kind of how it worked out. But I want to begin with an illustration about a clever guy. This clever guy is named Somebody Else. There's nothing else, there's nothing this guy can't do. He's busy from morning to way late at night just substituting for you. You're asked to do this or you're asked to do that, and what is your ready reply? Get somebody else to do that job, he'll do it much better than I. So much to do in this weary old world, so much and workers are few. Somebody else all weary and worn is still substituting for you. The next time you're asked to do something worthwhile, just give this ready reply. If somebody else can give time and support, my goodness, so can I. Stop giving somebody else your job. Become a servant and watch what God will do for you because he can also do it through you. You will discover it really is more blessed to give than to receive. What kind of servant are you? One aspect of the Christian life, I believe, that is often given attention but still seemingly neglected is the aspect of the service of Jesus Christ through his life, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. We all understand that he served. As we'll see this morning, service was literally a part of who Jesus was. It it literally was the heart of everything that Jesus did, and yet... As much as we know this, as much as we understand this, it seems that we're content and happy to let somebody else serve. The reality for Jesus is that he could not please the Father without serving. He could not be great as we know him without serving. 
You see, Jesus served, and it was literally the foundation to the life that Jesus lived that resulted in the redemption of sinful man. Your redemption, the death of Jesus on the cross at Calvary, as so many of us can eloquently say, he died on the cross for my sins, was an act of service. Jesus' substitutionary death, his death in your place was a service. Your redemption resulted from his faithful obedience and willingness to serve. An obvious correlation to walking as Jesus walked is the correlation of our service to and for him. And so those who claim to be followers of Christ, you got to understand something. You cannot follow Jesus without serving him. You cannot follow Jesus without serving others. There is no such thing as selfish Christianity. There is no such thing as a Christianity that is built upon me in any facet. Christianity, the very essence of it, is service. And service is always to the benefit of others. And this was the very heartbeat of who Jesus was. For the professing Christian to claim to follow Jesus and not serve is similar to claiming to fly but not having wings. You can't fly without wings. You can fall, but you can't fly. And to be a Christian that doesn't serve is to fly with no wings. It's not possible. It's not plausible. And so I would submit to you this morning, as we're going to see from our text, as we talk about walking through the text, a lot of our conversation this morning is actually going to center around a conversation about greatness. The reality of service and greatness is fleshed out as we walk through this. But our text this morning begins with a conversation uh, about greatness. And there's a serving directly, or there's a correlation directly from God's word to serving and to greatness. And I would submit to you that this correlation isn't there because it sounds good or because it's good in theory. I would submit to you this correlation is there because it's what Jesus taught his disciples. To be a servant is to be great, and to be great is to be a servant. They are two sides of the same coin. Now, all followers of Christ are called to serve. Not in the same capacity, right? Everybody doesn't have the same giftedness. Everybody doesn't have the same abilities. But everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ is called to serve. There is no limit to that. There is no capacity. There is no time frame. The Christian life is a life of service in various capacities and ways. And it's interesting because this conversation, as we've alluded to, that takes place between Jesus and his disciples about service actually comes on the heels of a request by two of Jesus' most closest companions, James and John. And so I want to look quickly as we begin at the dialogue that Jesus has with these two men, James and John. And I'm going to start reading in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want for me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, 
one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. We see this dialogue between Jesus and two of his disciples. And this dialogue, as we've noted, it begins with a a request by James and John. And at its heart, what James and John are asking is this. Jesus, make us great. And this, this request is veiled in a request to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. But the reality of what we know about being seated at the right hand of God, this, this throne, they want to be on Jesus' right and Jesus' left hand in glory. And so what we understand about this is that to sit in these positions was to hold a position of power. It was to hold a position of authority. It was literally to hold a position that people would look at and they would acknowledge it as a great position. It was a seat of significance. The request really is significant, too, if you think about it, as it's revealing of their hearts. Because what we're going to see in a minute is these two men and their request of Jesus and their quest to be seated at his right hand and in his left, they're really just trying to beat the other ten to the punch. And so what we're going to see is this reality that in their quest to be great, really their quest is selfishness. Their desire is to be in a a position that there's only two of. There's 12 of them. There's only two of these positions, one to the left and one to the right. They're concerned with their role and their significance in the events that were set to unfold. And so they seek Jesus' approval to be the primary ones who would serve side by side with Jesus. And Jesus, as only Jesus can do, he responds to the two of them by first making a statement. You do not understand what you are asking. So he tells them they don't get it. And that's funny because last week when we looked at Jesus and the word of God, that was his indictment of the Sadducees, wasn't it? He told the Sadducees, the problem is you don't know the word of God or the power of God. Right? And so you have a similar thing here. They say, he says to James and John, you guys don't understand what you're asking. And then he poses a few questions for them pertaining to their request. You see, Jesus knew what they did not know. That he was not there to set up an earthly kingdom. They had this grandeur vision that he was going to come and he was going to conquer Rome and he was going to set up this earthly kingdom and in the middle of that kingdom would be Jesus and on the right and on the left would be James and John. That was what they knew and understood. That's what they were requesting. But Jesus knew that the kingdom he was there to proclaim and establish was not a physical earthly kingdom. Jesus was there to serve and to be a sacrifice for the purpose of redeeming sinful man. The function of Jesus in the flesh was to absorb the wrath of God in order that sinful man might be redeemed. This was nowhere on John and James's radar. 
John and James wanted to rule with Jesus in his kingdom and be great. And Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink, or that I am to drink? And we know this cup was what? The wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus not only drank the cup of the wrath of God, but as he says here, will you be able to be baptized with the baptism that I will have? He was literally baptized under the wrath of God in atoning for the sin of the world. You see, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there was this picture of baptism that was a, a picture of a reality of being overwhelmed of being surrounded by calamity and destruction. This is what the the, the disciples, this is what the word baptism, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized, Jesus says. He's literally communicating a picture of destruction and calamity, an overwhelming of calamity that was the wrath of God. And so we see this conversation, this dialogue, where Jesus speaks in such a way that he's communicating with these two men the things that are about to happen. We understand they still don't get it, and we know that because we have the whole counsel of God's word. But their dialogue continues because even though they hear what Jesus is saying, they still don't understand. They say, yes, Jesus, we can drink the cup you are drinking, and we can be baptized with the baptism that you will be baptized with. They're ready to fight alongside Jesus in an earthly battle. Are they not? Only as we've seen and alluded to, they don't get the reality of the situation. Jesus was not there to set up an earthly kingdom. Jesus was not there to fight an earthly battle. He was establishing a spiritual kingdom through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And so this dialogue between John, James, and Jesus would end with Jesus. He teaches, as he often does, and then he answers their question. After all of this, after the dialogue, Jesus tells the two men that not only will they, in fact, suffer a similar fate as Jesus does, but that the request to be seated at the right and the left hand of Jesus is not for Jesus to grant. So how do you like that? Jesus, give us these positions of authority and greatness so we can be great with you in your kingdom. And Jesus says, listen, can you drink the cup that I will drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And they say, oh, yes, we can. He says, you don't understand. But even though you don't understand, I want you to understand this. You will, in fact, drink the cup. You will, in fact, be baptized. But guess what? You still don't get the positions at my left and my right. You still don't get this position of earthly significance and authority. Why? Because it's not mine to give. Those things have already been determined and appointed. You know one of the things that I found was really interesting about James and John? I don't know if there's anything to this. I just found this was a very interesting fact. James and John beat the ten to the punch and asked Jesus, give us the seat. It's your right and your left so that we can be great in your kingdom. We can drink that cup. We can be baptized with your baptism. You know who the first martyr was for the cause of Christ? James. And you know who arguably suffered the most of the original 12 disciples for the cause of Christ? John. For those of you who don't know, John was boiled alive 
And when it didn't kill him, he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. And history, records would tell us that he was the last of the disciples to die for Christ. And Jesus told them, you will drink the cup. And you will be baptized. These men died for the cause of Christ. But even in that, Jesus said, but the request you're asking is not mine to give. And the reality is because at the heart of all of this, as we've seen, was the selfishness of these two men. They wanted to be regarded as great. They wanted to be regarded as people who had power and authority. And selfishness, position, stature is the opposite of true greatness. No selfish person can be great in the kingdom of God. You see, if the kingdom of God is being built up by people who, like James and John, are more concerned with their own greatness than the greatness of Christ and others, then God's kingdom is not being built. And that's an important realization that must be made. If we're attempting to build God's kingdom and to do his bidding and to do his work and to proclaim his greatness with selfish ambitions and motives, then his kingdom is not being built. This is, these are inconsistent realities. They are at odds with one another. It's through selfless service that the kingdom of God is built, not through selfish service. I would submit to you that today in the church we must understand what is at stake. The church today cannot function if it's being built by individuals who, like James and John, pursue their own greatness or that pursue nothing at all. What best equips the church to reach the lost? Serving others. What best enables the church to grow those who make up the body? Serving others. We must not seek our own good and glory, but that of others. And so Jesus' dialogue with the two turns into a dialogue with 12 is the next thing that we see in our text. Verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him, and Jesus called them to him, excuse me, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but, what, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus' conversation with the two becomes a conversation with the twelve. And, the, and the, the reason why is obvious, it's clear. Because all of a sudden, there's this, uh, this tension that exists between the two and the rest of the ten that can be cut with a knife. And so Jesus steps in, and he seizes the opportunity to once again teach his disciples, this time as it would pertain to the reality of what true greatness is. And Jesus here teaches about greatness from a negative example. He doesn't say, do this. Jesus would actually give an example that says, your service, greatness, does not look like this. And this is what? It's the example of what the world would consider greatness. So Jesus teaches them really what, grace, what greatness is not. And he references the Gentile model. 
And underneath this Gentile model, Jesus uses a number of terms to define or to outline this model. They come together, and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, rulers. So you have this model of greatness that has people in it who are rulers. This is the position of leadership, right? We, all, we can see that, rulers. That means there's people under them that are subject to their authority. The ruler has a title that carries with it uh, one of power and authority and leadership. But that's the Gentile model. In the biblical model, a title does not make one a leader. In the Gentile model, you have the rulers. And Jesus says that these rulers lord it over them. That would be those who are subject to their ruling. So we have a position of leadership for the ruler, but the, the ruler, as he's lording over, also has a position of power. And in the earthly model of leadership or of greatness, we see a reality that giving orders is what would give someone a position of significance or greatness. But in the church, giving orders does not make one a leader. Jesus continues examining the Gentile model. He talks about the rulers who lord it over the people. And they're great ones. He continues to refer to the folks who are part of this system the great ones, a position of prestige and, and prominence or, or recognition. These are positions of leadership in the Gentile model. Fame does not make one a leader in God's leadership description. Just because people know you does not mean you're a biblical leader. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. You think James and John didn't uh, hear what he was saying? Just because you have a seat at the table, just because you're at my left and your right, does not make you great. It doesn't make you a leader. Prominence and fame don't cut it in the kingdom of God. He goes on and he talks about these ones who are great. What do they do? They exercise authority. So they have a position of privilege. And the Gentile model would say that position of privilege is leadership. I have the ability, I have the permission to, to rule and to exercise authority over those who are under me. But having rank does not make one a leader. It doesn't bring true greatness in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus unpacks this Gentile model and then he issues a very clear, understandable, stern exhortation. It shall not be so among you. He tells the twelve, first the two who beat the other ten to the punch, and then the other ten who are furious with the two because of their pursuit. He tells them, this is not how the kingdom of God functions. This is how the world functions. James and John, I, Jesus does it. It's not recorded for us here that he says it, but you can, you can hear, you can sense what Jesus is saying. James and John, your selfish desire to undercut the other ten and beat them to the punch is not greatness. And the ten who become jealous and indignant, that's not greatness either. 
In fact, what's interesting about what Jesus says about what true greatness is, is that all 12 of them demonstrated they're not great at all. Because what they desired more than anything was greatness under the Gentile model. And Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. And then he tells his disciples exactly what true greatness is. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Do you think service matters? Do you think when you hear Jesus say these things, do we get the impression that Jesus is saying, well, if you feel like serving, go ahead. Well, if you feel like this or that or Eh, it'd probably be a good idea. No, Jesus is lambasting the idea that greatness is determined by anything other than service. Who would be great among you must be your servant. This is the word diakonos, servant. And it's one who voluntarily renders useful service to others. Okay, so again, here we have this idea right, of, of service being about others, not ourselves. And Jesus says, this is the expectation. If you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be a servant. But he doesn't stop there. He says, whoever would be first, James and John, you were the first to ask. And if you really want to be great, if you really want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be slave of all. Now, I understand in the world we live in, in our context, in our culture, the word slave is a bad word, Okay? but had biblical origins that aren't as heinous as the world as we live in today, okay, that would have been understood when Jesus would communicate this. The Greek word that would be used for slave is doulos, and it is one, you ready for this? It is one who forfeits his own rights in order to serve any and all. The slave says, it's not about me. The servant says, I will give of myself to others. You see, Jesus very clearly calls his disciples to not think of greatness in terms of how the world would define it. And what we must understand this morning is that not only does Jesus say, it shall not be so among you, this is what you should do, but when Jesus says to them in his dialogue with the 12, this is what it looks like to be truly great in the kingdom of God, he's literally offering them something better. Jesus is not teaching his disciples that, listen, don't live out the Gentile model, and we got this other model over here, and they're equally good. They're both okay, but this one is about, bet, it's about the betterment of others, so it's a better system. No, Jesus is literally offering his disciples a way of life in service to others and to Christ that is far superior than the world's model. Listen, if we took a minute and we went around this room and we just named six to ten organizations that exist in the world as we know it, that we would say maybe have something wrong with them, Almost all of them, we could, track to, we could track it back to the fact that the decisions that are made ultimately aren't about others. We live in a world, even in the church, where the goal is to get what I can get. It's about me. 
It's not about other people. It's not about the cause of Christ. It's not about the gospel. We were talking this, this past um, Wednesday night at, at Growth Group together. We were talking, and, and, you know, as we were having our dialogue and talking through some different things, he just kept thinking of this reality where Jesus tells his disciples, pray, pray for laborers. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. How can we live in a world and in a country where hundreds of millions, billions of people proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, and yet Jesus is still exhorting us today to pray that God would raise up laborers because the harvest is plentiful, but there's not enough laborers. The laborer is not me and Aaron. The laborer is everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. You guys know we recently put out like our serving survey, right? We had a pretty good response. Uh, I was very thankful for that. But I want you to know, maybe you looked at that, maybe you thought about that and said, you know, I don't know what I can do. I don't don't know. There is not a person here who can't greet. There's not a person here who can't shake a hand and say good morning. And that's service. That's a service to others for the glory of Christ. This is the essence of the Christian life. And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. True greatness is manifested in a life that is lived for the glory of God and other people. Not ourselves. Jesus would tell these men that in the world, in this world system... Those who believed that they would be great based upon their own understanding, in fact, they're not great at all. And they're certainly not great as it would pertain to God's kingdom. For the disciples then and for followers today, there is no room in the Christian life to not serve others. Every believer is called to the stewardship of service. Now, as we've already alluded to, it's not going to look the same for everyone. And that's okay. Everybody won't teach. Everybody won't preach. Everybody won't lead music. But the reality is if we say, well, I can't preach, I can't teach, I can't play music, so there's no ways for me to serve, we've not understood. Like, you guys have probably all heard the illustration or a form of this illustration or story you know, lots of times there's, there's churches who will utilize other facilities, maybe because they don't have a building or maybe they've got one being built or maybe, you know, there's been situations where like a storm damaged a roof or something like that. And so you have these situations where churches are utilizing other spaces. And, um, and, and you hear about, you know, stacking chairs is a phrase that's used often. And maybe the one who thinks, well, stacking chairs really doesn't matter, so I don't need to do it. Does it really not matter? The stacking of chairs in and of itself isn't necessarily an act of spiritual service. But what if your willingness to stack chairs allows people to come hear the proclamation of the word of God, which leads to salvation of just one person? Was stacking chairs an act of spiritual service? Absolutely. Now, We don't have to stack chairs. For the purpose of illustration, I trust you understand what I'm saying. You don't have to preach and teach and sing and play instruments to serve the body of Christ. It doesn't look the same for everyone. But the honest to goodness truth is that there is no excuse 
for anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus to not be serving the kingdom of God. And this isn't just because it's what Jesus taught. Perhaps most importantly, it's because it's what Jesus exemplified. And so Jesus has this dialogue with these men, and they're having this conversation about true greatness. And Jesus says, look, this is the model the world's using, and you guys are pursuing, by the way, he tells the disciples, and this is how it should be. And then in verse 45, after he tells them, you know, listen, if you're going to be great, you must serve. You, if you're going to be first, you've got to be a slave of all. And then he says this, for even the Son of Man, for even, right? Jesus tells his disciples very clearly, out loud, up front, that's the reason I came. For even the Son of Man came, not to be served. Listen, if there was ever anyone who just in and of himself, because of who he was, deserved to be served, it was Jesus, But Jesus took a position that said, I didn't come to be served. Though I could rightly demand that you would serve, I would then be functioning under the Gentile model. Instead, what I want you to understand is that the Gentile model is broken and it doesn't work. And that if it's really going to work, if we're really going to grow the kingdom of God, if we're really going to be great, then we're going to serve. And that's even why I came. I didn't come to be served, but I come to serve. And then he goes all the way full circle back to the cup that he asked the disciples if they, come, if they could drink, if they could be baptized. He says what? I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I trust none of us in this room this morning would debate the greatness of Jesus Christ. There's never been one like him And there never will be one like him. He truly was great. He truly is great. And in his greatness, he was a servant. He set an example to be followed of service and of sacrifice. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Consider the reality with me if you would. That he was the only one who was able to do what sinful man needed more than anything else. Nobody else could meet the perfect standard, the holy, righteous standard of the God of the universe except God himself. Nobody else The reality is that the magnitude of the service of Jesus is immeasurable. We cannot quantify the greatness of the service of Jesus Christ. The stakes were high. And the transaction that had to take place and did because of the fact that Jesus was a servant was paying the highest of prices to meet that standard that God had appeasing the wrath of God through his sacrificial death. Had Christ not come as a servant, you and I are still dead in our sins and trespasses. You and I are condemned guilty before the holy God of the universe. You and I would be enemies of God. 
You know, there's a chance this morning that we might be tempted to look at the sacrifice of Christ and say, well, of course he did that. He's God. That's what he had to do because he's God. But God's word is clear that Christ chose to willingly serve at the expense of himself. It was literally why he came. And if we're willing to be honest this morning, I believe in the church today, many of us have a salvation that looks more like somebody else can do it than send me, I'll go. You see, these are the only two responses. Somebody else can do it or send me, I'll go. And so for me, the obvious question becomes, what if Christ had functioned that way? Somebody else can redeem sinful man. No, they couldn't. What if Christ had said, somebody else can do it? Father, I don't really like that plan. I don't want to be faithfully obedient to your will because it's going to cost me greatly. God, I don't want to leave my heavenly abode where I have everything at my disposal. Everything is in a state of perfection. We are in perfect union and fellowship. I don't want to go redeem those people, God. So I don't want to do that. We know from God's word, and it was the exact opposite. Though he was in the form of God, he counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped. Literally said, the fact that I am God, I will set aside so that I can become like a sinful man for one purpose, to die. And what if Christ had said, somebody else can do it? Maybe. Just maybe there's an area of service where if you don't heed the call to serve as Christ has served, then it won't get done. We may be tempted to think this morning, my service to Christ and others isn't like his because it wasn't about life or death. Jesus' service was absolutely about life and death. His service was to redeem sinful man. But what if your service is about life and death? What if availing ourselves to God in whatever capacity necessary would lead to the salvation of even one soul? Would you do it? Would you do it? And you may be tempted to think, but how do you know, Pastor Jay? My service may not lead to anyone's salvation. You're right. I don't know if it will, but I do know that not serving surely isn't going to lead to anyone's salvation. And so where do we land this morning after a conversation of greatness and the example of Jesus? Serve as Christ has served. It may not be your physical death like it was for the disciples or like it was for Jesus. But will you sacrifice for the cause of Christ? Will you put someone else ahead of yourself Because this is true greatness. And that's where this conversation started, with a request for greatness from two of Jesus' followers. And this request for greatness culminated with the highest of challenges. For those very men who asked to be great, Jesus said, if you want to be great, live for other people. 
Willingly give of ourselves is the call. Willingly giving of ourselves for the sake of the gospel and, of, and for other people. I'm convinced the world we live in and just the way things are and oftentimes the way we function as people, we may be tempted to settle for less than greatness in the kingdom of God. I don't really need to be great. I just need to get there. I want you to understand something. False humility is one of the greatest tools of the devil. It doesn't matter. I don't really want to be great. Somebody else can be great. I don't need to be great. I just need to get there. But you know, it's interesting because when we examine this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, there was no in-between. There's those who are great and there's those who are not. There's a model that the world employs that doesn't produce greatness and there's a model that the kingdom of God employs and greatness is the result. There's no in-between. Some will serve and be great. Some will not serve and they won't be quite as great. So pick which one you want to be. Jesus very clearly taught his disciples the kingdom of God functions differently than the kingdom of the world and that those who serve in the kingdom of God are great. And if you're tempted this morning to take the position that says you don't really want to be great or you don't need to be great, I have no problem saying I'm not convinced that you have fully understood the magnitude of Christ's service to you. Because we can spend the entirety of our lives serving and never fully repay Christ. And that's why it's a good thing that we don't have to repay Christ. But out of devotion and love for what he's done, we serve. Because it's the natural response of a grateful heart. Don't strive to be great. Strive to be faithful. But you can't be faithful without serving. So serve as Christ served, willingly, humbly, sacrificially, obediently, and for the betterment of others. Serve as Christ served.